How does space research impact our daily lives? What are the challenges facing space researchers today? From the Chicago Policy Review and the University of Chicago, this is Chicago Policy Radio. I'm your host, Julie Cooper. Today, I'm at Chicago's Adler Planetarium, where I'm joined by Dr. Mark Hammergren. Dr. Hammergren is an astronomer at the Adler, where he leads a research program to characterize the composition of asteroids. He is also the director of the Planetarium's Astro Science Workshop, an astronomy program for high school students, and of the Adler's Far Horizons Citizen Space Exploration Program which sends students and volunteer-built experiments aboard high-altitude balloons to heights exceeding 100,000 feet. His research interests include asteroids, meteorites, impacts, and mass extinctions, and the history and sociology of the flying saucer phenomenon. Dr. Hammergren, thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be here today. Let's start off by speaking generally about the life of a contemporary astronomer. What are the top three priority areas in space research today? Well, that's something of a contentious question because uh, it, it's often said that if you ask two astronomers their opinions, you'll get three opinions. Uh, uh, so coming up with a list of only three top priorities in the field is kind of tough to do. But I, I think we can nail this down to these, these following here. And the first is the nature of dark energy and dark matter. Now these are both mysterious things. The dark here doesn't really mean anything about uh, what we know they're like. I mean, it's, it uh, just means that they're mysterious and very hard to understand, hard to, to observe. Uh, they make up the vast majority of mass and energy in the universe, make up about, uh, between them, about 95% of what the universe is made of. And normal matter uh, that we're familiar with and, and energy, that just makes up 5%, tiny minuscule portions. So clearly understanding these two things, dark energy and dark matter, are critical for understanding this universe that we live in. The, the second is uh, really the motivation behind uh, a, an observatory like the James Webb Space Telescope that's going to be coming up within this decade. It's going to be launched a major new uh, initiative by NASA. And that is the understanding uh, of the early universe. We, we look for the formation of the first stars and the first galaxies. So how did the universe go from being this relatively structureless mass of, of gas and, and energy into the highly intricate structures we see today? Galaxies, spiral galaxies like the Milky Way, these kinds of things. And then the third, finally, probably the most accessible to the uh, general public, is the, the search for habitable planets. So this motivates looking for planets around other stars, which we've really only been successful at doing uh, for, gosh, less than, less than 20 years now. And uh, since then, thousands of candidates have been found. And uh, as time goes on, we uh, gain the ability to find smaller and smaller planets. And recently, uh, results of the Kepler spacecraft have found planets roughly the size of Earth in roughly the same kinds of orbit as Earth. And that's, uh, we don't know for sure that those are habitable, but they're in the right place for that. So that, that's a, a long-term guiding goal of, uh, of 
planetary science and, and astronomy in general. As we know, NASA, or as many of the listeners probably know, NASA has faced um, a lot of budget cuts lately. They ended the space shuttle program. What are the implications for these budget cuts, and how, how, does, how is the field dealing with them? The field is dealing with them as best they can. <laughs> um, and uh, that's, I'm not, not being facetious, it's just a reality, really, uh, that uh, while we try to influence the, the course of government priorities in, in spending, as, as every field does, uh, there are structures to do that in astronomy. We have these things we call the decadal surveys, the decadal reports, where once every roughly 10 years, astronomers get together and they form committees and they decide on what are the research priorities? So, you know, what, what is the state of understanding in astronomy today? And what are the top priorities? And these uh, top science priorities should ideally guide the funding. Now, that's, that's ideally. That's not always the case. Uh, a good example is in planetary science where the uh, federal administration came down and said, well, you know, although you didn't specifically request such a thing in your decadal survey, we're going to specify the launch of a new Mars rover in 2020. And this, this is a, a so-called flagship mission. This is probably going to cost a couple billion dollars to, to, to do, which was not specifically one of the priorities in this report. Now, uh, the, the second one also is, uh, just came out recently, the past few months, is uh, NASA is going to be trying to mount an asteroid retrieval mission by about 2025. And that is, uh, what they're going to do is, instead of sending astronauts out to an asteroid out in space, which could be at least weeks long transit, that kind of thing, pretty ambitious and, and dangerous thing to do they're going to send a robotic spacecraft out, grab a tiny asteroid, maybe only five meters or 15 feet across, and then drag it back into a high lunar orbit, high orbit around the moon. Makes it much more accessible to astronauts. It's a three-day, one-way trip out there. And you know, once we have it corralled out there, they'll send astronauts out to pick rocks off of it and bring them back to Earth. Now, the, the robotic spacecraft part of that alone is likely to cost at least $2.6 billion. Again, these are budget expenditures that have to start happening now if we're going to make that mission happen. And they weren't planned for. They weren't requested by scientists. So there was really very little science input on these major decisions. So we, we have to deal with these as best we can because it's the, it's the administration and Congress that come up and set our funding levels. And uh, we have to make ourselves fit that. So it sounds to me that there's, there's politics involved in, in science. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious, in that case, what you think drives these political decisions. So if you're saying, for instance, that the, science isn't, the scientists aren't asking for a new Mars rover, then where does somebody in con where does a congressperson come up with the idea that we need a new Mars rover? Well, somewhere, somewhere along the way, uh, thought, hey, this Mars rover we set down there is a great success. It's a big flashy thing. It's something we can point to as one of our, our victories, a success uh, in NASA and the U.S. in general. Uh, let's do more of that. We've got to do that again. Mm -hmm. This uh, asteroid retrieval mission is kind of interesting, too, because, uh, uh, boy, there, the, there's a storied history of human exploration in space. 
you know, starting with the, the Apollo program, and then, okay, what's the next goal going to be? It's going to be the space shuttle. We're going to have a truck taking stuff into space, basically. Didn't quite materialize that way. Then it's the International Space Station. We've got that. Now, that's all in low Earth orbit. It doesn't really push the, the, the frontiers. So what are we going to do? We're going to return to the moon. And then from there, go on to Mars. And this is a, a, proceed, a process, a proposal started by the uh, elder President Bush. Now that got modified over time. We're not just going to go back to the moon. We'll go on to Mars. Well, maybe we'll go to Mars first. Then President Obama said, well, rather than doing either of those things, which we don't really have the money to do, we're going to send astronauts to an asteroid by the mid-2020s. And once he you know, planted his flag on that, I guess, once he made that proposal, that really left NASA scrambling to figure out how we're going to do that. And uh, as I mentioned before, sending astronauts out there, that's a really tough thing to do. But what if we bring a little tiny one back to Earth orbit and um, just, you know, that fulfills the president's statement, the, the, the letter of the, the law, without really quite uh, getting at, at the original intent, perhaps. So instead of going out to this new frontier, we're going to bring the mountain to us. Since you, you uh, alluded back to the, the space shuttle program, I want to touch on that a little bit. The, the vacuum created by the end of the space shuttle program has started to be filled by the private sectors. And what do you think will be the impact of privately run travel to space, both on space research and then just on space itself? Right. Well, uh, we're already seeing the impact of uh, this private industry, this new private industry uh, on, on space exploration, space travel. And w with the successful launch and return of the Dragon capsule, which is a resupply capsule for getting stuff up to the International Space Station. So this kind of thing is already taken off. We're going to see this kind of thing be become more routine, where private industry helps to take over more of the day-to-day, uh, -day, as it were, um, uh, tasks, uh, resupplying the International Space Station, maybe at some point taking astronauts up to the ISS. And uh, so more of the routine will be taken care of by private industry. And I think that's a, a long-term goal, too. Uh, the, it'll also lead to things like more launch options for satellites, because the more companies build these launch vehicles, so there'll be more providers out there, more competition, which uh, hopefully is a good thing. And so more opportunities to get cheap things up uh, in, in, into space. Uh, within the next few years, we're going to see the takeoff of things like space tourism. Virgin Galactic is a big one. There are other groups out there, X-Core. So a few other groups are building space planes to take visitors up to, up into space on suborbital trajectories. So we're not talking going up to the space station or the moon, but just shooting them up into space. The big impact I think that that will have is it will increase public awareness. Once, uh, once everyday people, well, with $200,000 to spare, uh, can go up to space, uh, they'll have stories to tell. They'll, they'll share this with other people. So I think that will increase awareness of getting into space. I, I'm not sure what the impact of that will be because we've never really quite done that before as a, as a civilization. We've never made that step. Uh, I'm hoping it leads to people kind of integrating space into their consciousness, that this is, you know, not just something that 
governments and uh, space agencies do, but it's something that we can do ourselves, hopefully in our lifetime. Kind of gets us back to that view from like the 1930s and 40s, the science fiction view. In the year 2000, we'll have atomic flying cars and bases on the moon, that kind of thing. I'm hoping that that's what it, it leads to in our consciousness. There are other things too in the works, uh, space habitats, space stations built by private organizations. Bigelow uh, Space uh, is building these inflatable modules that could be used as space stations. They've already got a couple test ones up there in orbit around the Earth. And uh, that could be some place where we could send astronauts up to to really more cheaply run experiments than we can on this great, big, expensive International Space Station. It's interesting you, you mentioned this idea of raising the consciousness, the public consciousness mm. about space, and you kind of alluded in the first question that there are some aspects of space research that are maybe less accessible to the mm. general public than others. If you had to sort of summarize what the impact of space research is for the layperson, you know, how does it affect me? Um, how would you start to have people think about that impact on their daily lives? Right. Well, NASA has been very big for a long time on pushing the spin-offs, the kind of unintended positive consequences of building things for space and putting things up in space. And the, the, these are the result of, well, space travel, even in its simplest form, is still really complex. It's rocket science. And so we're pushing the, the boundaries of what technology is capable of. We're, we're coming up with requirements for things that the industries, technologies that just don't exist currently. And so that inspires all kinds of new developments. Some of them get incorporated into Gosh, just our, our daily lives, and we don't even know it. Uh, uh, grooved pavement you know, to, to uh, keep vehicles from skidding when it gets wet. That was originally invented by NASA. Uh, their aeronautics uh, portion, so National Aeronautics and Space Agency, uh, for use on runways. And it was found to be incredibly uh, effective and has, you know, been, it's used all over the place now. So NASA's big on touting their spin-offs. And that's really a, a good hard benefit of, of space travel, space exploration. But there are intangible benefits too that I think are even greater. Uh, the Apollo missions, going to the moon, people still talk about that. You can send a man to the moon and it, it's, it's thrown up as an example of what humanity is capable of when we put our minds to it. It's a tremendous inspiration. It's very uplifting. So it, it's something that people can look to and feel good about themselves as being part of the human race. Uh, and even past Apollo, you know, because <laughs> that was a long time ago now, uh, we have things like the space telescope, the imagery that that was providing, just the sheer awe and wonder of looking at the universe and uh, knowing that we are a part of this. Uh, this is uh, it's very hard to quantify, impossible to really, but I think the effect of that broadening our consciousness, letting us see what the universe is like, put ourselves in it. That's a very important thing. I want to talk a little bit about um, some of your areas of specialty. Um, so one of, the, one of your areas is, um, as we mentioned in the bio, asteroids and meteors and the impacts that these objects make with the Earth. 
Um, many of our listeners probably saw those incredible videos this past February of a meteor flying over Russia. Yes. Um, and you have uh, mentioned to me before that Congress has set up a number of mandates regarding surveys for potentially hazardous asteroids and procedures for notifying the government and public of future asteroid impacts. Mm -hmm. So can, we, can you talk a little more about that? What are the most important things that the public should know about potential future impacts and what sort of policies should ideally be in place to deal with them? Right. Well, I think probably the most important thing for people to know is that while asteroid impacts do occur, and we saw that over Russia back in February, I think it was, uh, the, the risk of an impact from a, a large asteroid, a very large asteroid, is very small. So the, the probabilities we're talking about are very, very low. The, the risk of an individual dying due to an asteroid impact is, is very small. It's comparable to dying in a plane crash uh, over, over the course of your life. But the consequences of an asteroid impact are great. So we've got a very low probability but high consequence event. And those things are very hard to communicate to the public. Because if it doesn't happen you know, every day or every year, we just forget about it. It's not part of our experience. Um, uh, on the other hand, people do deal with these low probability, high consequence events in, in their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, they still play the lottery. So we do have a, a way of, of thinking about these things and, and dealing with them. Uh, we, uh, and, and NASA has been responding, the governments around the world have been responding to this impact threat too by allocating more and more money to the search for potentially hazardous asteroids. And uh, as you mentioned, Congress has uh, a couple of times mandated uh, certain goals for surveys. Back in the earlier 90s, there was a Space Guard survey where NASA was supposed to catalog more than 90% of all potentially hazardous asteroids larger than a kilometer. And uh, so that, that guided some of uh, the, you know, the, the survey strategies. And uh, I'm happy to report that so far it's been a success. Uh, much more than, well, significantly more than 90% of these very large objects have been found and cataloged, only a few remaining. And uh, we know that none of them are on a collision course with us, at least within the next 100 years or so. So that's a, you know, a breath of relief there. There was a second mandate in 2005. Congress uh, enacted the George E. Brown Jr. Near-Earth Object uh, Search Program. Uh, they mandated that the, the goal now is more than 90% of all hazardous asteroids larger than about 140 meters across. Now that is a relatively arbitrary number. That's a size at which an asteroid could do significant damage to a region. So not just global effects, but a region. Uh, for perspective, 140 meters across is about 10 times the size of the asteroid that hit over Russia. It's about 10 times the size, but that's a thousand times the mass and energy. So even though 140 meters is small for an asteroid, its effects would be big on the Earth, if it, uh, at least in that region. Um, so what should we do about these things? Well, pretty much what we're doing already, but better. Uh, so there should be more surveys for asteroids. There should be more resources allocated to it, and it looks like the administration is doing that. Uh, about five years or so ago, they 
increased the funding for near-Earth object observations from about $5 million a year up to $20 million a year, and the proposed budget for 2014 doubles that figure again up to $40 million. So you know, $40 million is a tiny fraction of the federal budget, but it's enough to do some real significant work in cataloging these asteroids and, and uh, like what I, I do, trying to figure out what they're made of and what, what, what these things are like. That's going to be essential for that uh, asteroid retrieval mission. Thank you so much for being on the program and uh, appreciate all your thoughts on space policy. It's uh, my pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, a production of the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Our podcast was produced and edited by Julie Cooper. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ryan Gee. You can find us at www.chicagopolicyreview.org. Thanks for listening and join us again next time. <laughs>